appreciate everyone. Welcome, welcome to show 37 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by my co-host Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hello, Matthew. And today we are going to introduce our special guest, Jeremy Gardner. Jeremy is a crypto entrepreneur, uh, was a co-founder of the Augur Project, founder of the Blockchain Education Network, Distributed Magazine, and his most recent project is Awesome Ventures. That's awesome spelled A-U-S-U-M, which I understand is daring and enterprising in Latin, though Jeremy can uh, elaborate. Jeremy, thanks for joining us and welcome to Crypto Voices. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you being on here. Um, I think you are probably the youngest guest we've had on the show, so congrats on that. H- how old are you, are you, if I could ask? I uh, just turned 26. Great, congrats. And uh, yeah, obviously you had uh, already uh, quite a storied career in crypto, so happy to chat with you uh, today. Uh, I'm sure, just to start, want to be a bit broad, maybe you can give us the short to medium length version uh of specifically how you got interested in Bitcoin, uh, and even more specific, if there were any economic reasons uh, which got you interested. That's usually how we start the show. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you've given that intro in many places, but yeah, just a couple words. How did you find Bitcoin, and were there any economic reasons that pulled you to it? Uh, well, in short, no. But but the story is uh, similar to to many's uh, in that I first learned about Bitcoin because of the Silk Road. It was in Rolling Stone magazine, to which I was a subscriber back in 2011. And I read about this black market, Amazon.com, and I thought that was fascinating. And so I went and I learned about the Silk Road. Then I learned that there was this thing called Bitcoin that you had to use uh, to engage in commerce on the website. And I learned about this Bitcoin thing, and I was like, wow, this is stupid. It's volatile. It's hard to get. This is, that, that, that's, it's just kind of crazy. Uh, and so I, I never bought any Bitcoin. I kind of ignored it. And it was, it was probably the reason why I never ended up on the Silk Road. And then I, uh, two years later, I had really gone deep down the, into the world of politics, which had always been a fascination of mine growing up in a you know, small college town in Western Massachusetts, the world of tech and entrepreneurship didn't even seem like possibilities to me. And I thought the way that you go and change the world at scale was through politics. And so in college, I had developed my own major in political strategy. And the summer of 2013, I worked for the governor of Massachusetts. And after that summer, I actually dropped out of the school I was in and ran the campaign to the woman who is now Attorney General in Massachusetts. And through those two experiences, I became deeply disillusioned with my potential to affect change in my 20s while working in politics. And so I had this period of cognitive dissonance in my life where I knew I wanted to change the world, but I didn't know how. And so I transferred to the University of Michigan at the beginning of 2014, and I just happened to move in with a young Bitcoin entrepreneur. I started one of the first Bitcoin exchanges in the United States, and he was from the inner city of Detroit, and he had had his house foreclosed upon in the Great Recession, and his family had been disenfranchised by banks and governments, and he saw Bitcoin as a cure to uh, the failures in contemporary society. And I was skeptical. I came from a very liberal kind of, uh, you know, progressive point of view and 
Bitcoin at the time was deeply crypto anarchistic and libertarian and didn't really run in line with my beliefs. But I had been at Zuccotti Park uh, uh, occupying Wall Street, uh, marching against the big banks. And so I could relate to a, a limited degree. And I began to learn more and more about the technology. And through my friend Kennard, who introduced me to Bitcoin, I joined the University of Michigan Bitcoin Club. And at the very first meetup, a reporter came and asked us about our club and mentioned that there were other Bitcoin clubs at Stanford and MIT. And so I got on a call with the heads of all these Bitcoin clubs that same night, and I suggested we create an organization that would go on to become the Blockchain Education Network. So there was actually no economic incentive. I didn't really end up buying a considerable sum of Bitcoin until after the Augur ICO, which was almost a year and a half, almost two years later. So I, I, I got into Bitcoin and crypto because I thought it was this revolutionary technology that had the potential to change the world. But I really never got into it to make money. That just happened to be a nice, positive externality. Yeah, and I think that's... Um that's something that everybody needs to be cautious about these days, uh, as it's on the news more and more. I, I wasn't necessarily referring to like financial incentive or anything, but just um, a lot of people that have gotten in at the early days, they they had some sort of political, economic, some sort of pushback, and it seems like it was like that a bit for you. Yeah, so 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 there was definitely the Occupy Wall Street side of me. I'm probably for a long time I was probably the biggest Marxist in the industry. <laughs> Although I'm not, I'm not truly a Marxist, but I, I I really did have a very strong kind of vein of redistribution of wealth, and I I saw blockchain technology as being this extraordinary technological disintermediator that allowed you to take out the middleman from processes and actually restore value and return value to value creators and value consumers, not these middlemen in between. And that applies to almost every single industry, and I think that's what makes blockchain technology so exciting. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm curious, though, that is interesting what you're saying, uh, just the joke about the Marxist. I mean, no one has a monopoly on perfect information, but uh, or necessarily the right way to do things. But I mean, have you? Do you still feel that way, like socially, politically? Or have you? Are you? Have Look, you... I, I I think everyone benefits. Society benefits, and economically, the the upside to having a society where nobody is left behind is tremendous. You look you look at Scandinavia, and sure, they're much more homogenous cultures than much of the rest of the world. But people are happier there. The quality of life is happier. And yeah, sure, people may may pay more taxes, but nobody's left behind. And, and I think that's really important. Now, whether you ensure that nobody's left behind through technology or through social programs, I don't really care. If we have a way to 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 ensure that nobody is suffering from hunger or or thirst in the 21st century, which shouldn't be an issue, or homelessness in the 21st century. Then, it, then by all means, let's do it through uh, private industry and through service and th- services and through capitalism. But at the end of the day, we have to look out for one another. And, and that's really where my view stems from. Okay, interesting. We have lots of questions for you. I, I wanted to maybe go back, though, uh, to one of, I guess was one of the earlier ones for you uh, with the Augur Project. I know you're no longer with them. Sure. Um, that's one I've been following for a while. I think this idea of prediction marks is quite interesting, no doubt. Uh, the founders of Ethereum did. I know Vitalik was an early advisor and so on and so forth. Could you just explain a little bit about you know how you came to, to be one of the co-founders of Augur and, and why that was an interesting project for you? 
Sure. So through my nonprofit, um, I experienced this ex- exponential growth in the organization shortly after founding it. We went from having three chapters to over 100 chapters in 20 plus countries on every habitable continent within three months. And one of the founders of uh, the chapter at Pomona College over in SoCal was Joey Krug, this brilliant 18-year-old computer scientist. And Joey and I, like when we used to onboard new chapters to our organization, uh, my co-founder Danny and I would just get on a call uh, with with the heads of the new organizations and onboard them to, our, to what we were building. And Joey and I got on a call and Joey was telling me how he wanted to build a hardware point-of-sale system for crypto. And I was like, oh, I've been talking about how we need that. And we start ideating and deciding to make a point-of-sale system that takes both crypto and credit cards. And we start working. And I was like, hey, I'll, I'll, like, I'll pay for you to get the tools for this. I'll kind of be your like angel ambassador. And Joey and I start working together. And it turns out he was from Illinois, not too far away from where I was at Michigan. And over the summer, when he came back home, we decided to work on this project together. And he would come to Michigan a bunch, and we would work on the idea and at, while I was also growing this nonprofit I was building. And then at that, right before the fall semester, Joey realized he wanted to take a leave of absence to work on the project. I was less inclined, but then the honors college where I was enrolled at Michigan uh, messed up my transcript, and pretty much the dean of the honors college told me to drop out. So Joey and I have both pretty much dropped out of school or leave of absence and to, to focus on these ventures. But we didn't have a source of income, and so we got reached out to by a CEO I knew knew who had raised a bunch of money but didn't know what he was building, and we went and joined his team. And it was really crazy, and I, without going go, going into details, it was, it, it was a disaster, this startup. But while Joey and I kind of worked on our startup, I worked on my nonprofit, we tried to keep this crazy team together that had money but no idea what it was building – we stumbled across a white paper for a decentralized prediction market platform, effectively an unstoppable online betting platform that predicts the future. Now, I was already familiar with prediction markets because I had made a bunch of money in uh, 2008 and 2012 betting on the presidential elections state by state on in-trade, which had subsequently been shut down by the CFTC. And so I knew that prediction markets were this incredible way to predict the future and to reward people for saying what for for being act, pundits that actually correctly predict what happens. And so I was very excited when I read this white paper. And I don't know if you guys were in the industry in 2014, but that was when we had the first decentralization craze. People were, let's, were saying, let's decentralize all the things. Let's decentralize Twitter. Let's decentralize Facebook. Let's decentralize... Pretty much every business that you could imagine. And I, I thought that most of that was pretty crazy because back then we really only had Bitcoin. Ethereum hadn't even been launched yet. It was, almost, it was actually a year away from launching. But when I came across the idea for a decentralized prediction market, I actually saw a really strong use case. Because here's this tool that can help us predict the future that allows people to do something that they can't do online today in many countries, which is bet. And it needs to be censorship resistant. And that's what blockchains afford. And so Joey and I are talking with one another and we're like, we should build this. And we had a team. The team was kind of crazy. We had to get rid of the CEO. We had to get rid of the CFO. 
one was threatening to kill people, the other was stealing money from the organization. But we decided that we, we, we had the, the foundation for building this concept. And so we ended up moving up to San Francisco. We, moved, we would eventually move into what is now the Crypto Castle. Uh, and then we came up with the name Augur. And then, you know, soon enough, I was flying around the world raising awareness for this platform where we were building. At first, we tried to write a white paper on how to build a decentralized prediction market on top of Bitcoin. Then we tried to build on top of Bitcoin, and it was next to impossible. Vitalik, who's already an advisor of BC Love Prediction Markets, suggested, hey, I know Ethereum hasn't launched yet, but why don't you try building with Ethereum? And so nine months before Ethereum even launched, we started building Augur on top of it. So Augur was, was being written even before Ethereum launched, right? Nine months before, yep. Yeah, I remember when, when I first read the white paper and I, I actually struggled a lot to understand Augur's concept or the, the concept of a decentralized predictions market. Would you care to elaborate or how, do, how would you explain this for, a, for a, the layman? Sure. So a, a, a prediction market is just like a stock market. But instead of buying and selling shares in what you believe the future value of a company will be, you buy and sell shares in what you believe the future outcome of any event will be. That it can be a political event, it can be a climatological event, it can be a sporting match. So you can say, will, will Brazil beat Argentina in a football match? And people can buy yes or no shares, depending on whether, what they believe will happen. And those yes and no shares will cost between less than a penny and a dollar. So let's say more people believe Brazil will beat Argentina. It may be 60 cents for a yes share and correspondingly 40 cents for a no share. And what you can derive from those price per shares is, is the probability that, that the market assigns of the event occurring. So if it's 60 cents for a yes share uh, that Brazil will beat Argentina in the football match, that it's a 60% probability the market assigns to the event occurring. If someone has better information, they have a financial incentive to buy shares in whatever probability they, they believe the event will happen. So they think they, that their Brazil has a higher probability of winning because they know an Argentinian player is injured, then they should buy more yes shares because as long as they're correct, they'll get a dollar for every yes share that they buy assuming that they were correct. So I, I understand the project should be starting soon, but you actually have left Augur, is that right? Yeah, so after the ICO, we had over two and a half years of coding left, and I'm not a coder. So it didn't seem like the best use of my time to be uh, twiddling my thumbs over at this nonprofit foundation building open source software, which never will have a future source of revenue draining kind of uh, its coffers when I could go work elsewhere. And, and I was getting poached by several local venture capital firms to work as an entrepreneur in residence. So that's actually what I did next. Have you kept up, though, with the state of the Augur project? I, I, you know, obviously it's- of course. I've never sold a single rep token. I talk to the team every day. I've helped them with banking issues, marketing, hiring, wherever I can be helpful. I, I, I do exactly what I did before, but just in a more hands-off manner. I'm, I have still probably given more talks about Augur than anybody else and, and continue to give talks about it whenever I'm asked to. So it, I, I, I try to be the best ambassador I can to the platform. 
Yeah, no, I think that's great, and I, I I've seen you you know give talks on that that very topic. I, I'm just curious, you know, I, I see um, a lot of chat that you know it's, it's been a long time, as you said, I think some three years now of maybe full development, uh, and I believe they are trying to launch it, you know, soon. Is there is there anything like that you you have the your finger on the pulse on where you think it's it's getting to the right place finally that it could be launched or any other interesting things? Yes, so so, so the Augur mainnet will launch in April. And it will be a bug bounty mode in which there's only one market in which people are incentivized to go break the system. Because the thing about decentralized applications is that it's kind of like Pandora's box. Once you release a decentralized application, there's no server downtime. You can't, you can't take your platform offline. It, it, it is always up. And so there's some massive gaping vulnerability in your system Uh then your system can be broken forever. So you only really get one shot at launching a DAP like Augur. And so a lot of people don't know this, but Augur is the largest set of smart contracts ever deployed. So there, there has been a lot to audit. There's been a lot to double, triple, quadruple check. It's been through so many rounds of audits, but it's now just about ready to go. And, you know, look, half of the ICOs from 2017 have already failed. Probably actually more according to recent stats that I saw. You know, Augur raised $5.5 million in 2015. It's worth like $300 million now. No one, no one that got involved early is upset about where it's at. And it's much more important that given that the people that invested in it way back when really invested in it because they believed in it, uh, you know, they... We want to we, we want to deploy a product that works. It's so much more important than just rushing to market. This isn't like Silicon Valley. You really have to be incredibly precise. This is much more like mechanical engineering than classic computer programming. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. I agree with that approach. One more before we maybe move on to other topics, but. Augur is not the only prediction market uh, out there in the blockchain ecosystem. There's Gnosis, there's others. Uh, Paul Storch with Bitcoin Hivemind, um, I think it's probably known. He's one of the you know first people that thought of prediction markets, at least on a, on a blockchain or a Bitcoin's blockchain. Do you have any thoughts on the others as they sort of relate to Augur? Do you think there's any one or two things that make Augur stand out as being uh, better besides a couple of things you just mentioned? Well, you know, there, there are a few things. I, I like the Gnosis guys. I owe Paul for the original inspiration for Augur, but Paul's never delivered a product, so I'm not really concerned about that. Nor I don't do. I think he could ever get enough people to work for him because he's fairly insufferable. Uh, but <laughs> uh, and then the Gnosis team, you know, they're great, but they're not. It's not a fully decentralized system. At the end of the day. Augur is the only decentralized prediction market platform that if the team disappeared, if all the centralized APIs and arbiters that can be used to determine the outcome of events disappeared, it would have a totally foolproof and decentralized consensus mechanism, which is the rep token holders, who are the thousands of people that own the token and can report on the outcome of events for the system. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is in a decentralized system, if you create a platform that has centralized points of failures, it defeats the point of decentralization inherently. 
You know, in 99% of use cases, you'll be fine, but there's going to be one black swan event that breaks your system. And that's the problem with Gnosis, and that's the problem with every other system that I've seen that competes with Augur, is that they do not have a truly decentral, a fully decentralized system at the end of the day. You know, they, they have systems that are 95% decentralized, but it's the final 5% that's really hard to get to. And that's what Augur does better than anybody else with their rep tokens, which enable this decentralized consensus mechanism. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by HODL HODL, the cryptocurrency peer-to-peer exchange that does not hold your funds. On HODL HODL, all trades happen directly between buyers and sellers of both Bitcoin and Litecoin out of or into any fiat currency of your choice. No middleman involved. Each time there's a trade, a contract is created between the buyer and seller where the exchange generates a unique multi-sig escrow address into which the crypto seller safely deposits the funds until all steps of the trade conclude. HODL HODL itself does not touch the funds nor have its own wallet interacting with your trade. HODL HODL is a cheap, fast, effective way to sell some fiat paper tickets and buy some sound crypto. And until July 2018, you'll be pleasantly greeted with 0% commissions and SegWit support. The exchange requires no verification and is truly global. So wherever you are, go to hodlhodl.com today, get some Bitcoin, get some Litecoin, and we wish the team at HODL HODL all the best and thank them for their support of Crypto Voices. Now let us move on to the topic of ICOs. Sure. You know that some in the space really question the mechanics of ICOs. You know, like fronting the money without the work, a lot of promises, little sweat before more resources to get to the next phase, and automation also the ease of scamming. And actually, I've seen a recent stat from let me see here the uh, Satis research, and they've come up with a pretty staggering figure of 81% of ICOs being outright scams. I mean, this is really incredible. But yeah, they, they, so I, I, I tweeted about that recently, and you know, the first thing is 81% of ICOs might be outright scams, but if you account for what proportion of money raised they make up, it's probably un, it's probably sub five percent. Sub, for sure, for sure. Sub 2%, which, is, which put into context, isn't actually that bad. It's just if you, you look at everybody that said they're doing an ICO, sure, that's probably true. Uh, but, but then again, go, going to the overall issue of ICOs, ICOs are like going public when you're a seed stage company. There's a lot more room for failure, and there are much less exit routes. You know, mo- most ICOs, if 90% of startups fail, then at least 95% of ICOs should fail because there, there is no aqua hire or like mercy killing acquisition. There's no, there, there's no going public and then having private equity buy you. Like either you're wildly successful or you totally fail uh, because ICOs and tokens are about network effects. And so I'd be very hesitant to uh, to be to be skeptical about ICOs in the way that many people choose to be simply because they breed a lot of failures. Uh, you know, the fact of the market uh, the fact of the matter is is that public markets always breed a lot of failures like in the dot com bubble, but those that that bubble also produced 
Google and Amazon and eBay. And so you, you just have to pick your apples properly. You know, in terms of market cap, when we analyze current total market cap here on coin market cap, you can see it's roughly $300 billion. But if we put this into context, in September, just six months ago, total market cap was just south of $130 billion. So less than half of what it is now. Do you think we, st we are closer to actually 100 billion for total market cap or closer perhaps to 800 what the, the the figure we almost reached or actually surpassed back in december i would rather us go back down to 100 billion than see us go to 800 billion the fact of the matter is is that we are not generating nearly enough value through the technologies that we have deployed in the tokens that exist today to warrant those sorts of market capitalizations. I understand that they are that they're, the, the prices are driven by speculative future value, but we have to stay somewhat grounded in reality and recognize that today we are not generating a tremendous amount of value through the tech that we've deployed thus far. And thus, I think it's much better to be gra grounded in our expectations than constantly perpetuating this narrative of speculative craziness, which I think actually hurts our industry long term. And the, the question of valuation, so I think right now it's somehow it's there's no real, real science behind it or a, a consolidated methodology to value those tokens, all of them, even if it's a utility token, if it's a security, you have some cash flow method to, to value them. But how do you really do the valuation? I mean, and even when I, ha when I see some ICOs out there and I ask the, the, the founders, the creators, so how are they pricing? Well, they usually say, well, it's like 2,000 tokens for uh, one ether. And I say, how did you base your valuation on this? Well, this was actually what the last one did. So there's no real, <laughs> it seems there's no real uh, grounded uh, methodology for doing valuation of tokens. What's your view on this? It's total insanity right now. Like I said, I'd much rather see the market correct further than go up further. That's a fair judgment. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I'm I'm in a very fortunate position in that the the way I've made money in this ecosystem is that I am a long term value investor. I've never owned Litecoin. You want to know why? Because Litecoin is just a stupid fork of Bitcoin. And that's, that's going to sound like hearsay to a lot of people, or, or, or hereticism even. But the fact of the matter is, is that when I invest in tech in this space, I, and, and that can be tokens, you know, protocol tokens, utility tokens, I invest in technologies that I think will have dramatically made the world better or changed the world in a significant way in the next seven to 10 years. And I'm incredibly fortunate in that now the fund that I'm launching, which is a hybrid venture hedge fund, has the same outlook. Uh, I don't know how these hedge funds that are, are, are constantly worried about the next quarterly earnings are uh, rationalizing these insane market capitalizations. Fortunately, I don't have to do that. All I have to do is find tokens and projects that I think they're successful in a decade from now uh, that, 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 that they'll have created value for me. I don't care about short-term corrections because uh, I, my investors are locked in. And, and, and it allows me to really focus on long-term value creation, which has 
been a, had spectacular returns for me as an investor. Yeah, and, and I, uh, I actually want to get to the fund uh, next, but maybe one more question to lead into that. You know, I, I get the sense from your prior projects and from um, maybe most of your success or, or a lot of your success is that it's definitely on uh, more apps or even Ethereum-based, state-based uh, sort of projects. And, and absolutely, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or whatnot, but I'm wondering when you just look at the general, the very, very, very general sort of historical last couple year view of crypto, you know, with the UTXO-based coins and then Ethereum state-based dApps uh, type coins. Do you have sort of a general thesis on one versus the other? I mean, is Bitcoin exciting you right now with the Lightning Network? Just sort of a general question there before we get to the specifics of your fund. Look, a decade from now, my thesis is that there will probably be 6 to 12 protocols. We'll have a cryptocurrency protocol like Bitcoin. We'll have a privacy token like Monero or Zcash. We'll have several smart contract protocols. We'll have interoperable blockchain protocols, but that will be it. And I, I, I but and then there will be a stable coin as well. And and I, I, I think there's room for all of them. Uh, but what do what do I find exciting? Decentralized money is a very cool concept. And you know, I'm I'm on the advisory board of Basecoin, and I can't stop talking about it, which is an algorithmic stable coin. But for the most part, you know, money is money. It has a very clear utility in the world, which is for transactions. Uh, when we start thinking about the disintermediation of middlemen, a lot of what you can do with smart contract applications like Ethereum, um, yeah, that, that definitely gets me more excited. You know, we're not going to think of really new use cases for money in the next decade, but we're going to think of a whole lot of new use cases for decentralized applications. So that realm of possibilities definitely gets me excited, but I'm definitely holding Bitcoin and probably a privacy coin as well. And out of the privacy coins, which ones, which one do you prefer? Dash, Zcash, or Monero? So I, this is a great question I get asked way too often not to have a good answer to. <laughs> I've never owned a privacy coin, I'll tell you that. Uh, but for my fund, I, I realized that that's something that we do need to hold. And I, I, I would say that my choice is between Monero and Zcash. I have not heard stellar reviews of Dash as a, as a true privacy token. And... I don't know what I'm leaning towards. On the one hand, a report just came out uh, kind of uh, opening up the possibility of the traceability and uh, non-fungibility of Monero tokens, whereas ZK Snarks and Zcash are really unproven as as a privacy mechanism. I'm a big believer in ZK Snarks, but they're... They're very kind of academic in a sense. We don't actually know if they work. And so maybe all that will lead me to holding both. Uh, I'm not sure. But I, 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 I have not made a bet, but I would say it's going to be between um, Monero and Zcash. And regarding the investment thesis of Awesome Fund and what you've just uh, mentioned, I understand the investment horizon you have is something along the lines of uh, seven plus years, right? Yes. 
That, 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 that is the fun life. And how long will it take for you to judge if a project is actually uh, developing further or even succeeding or achieving the milestones? What are the metrics you, you tend to look at when you analyze the, the portfolio you, you've invested in? Well, I'd like to think of myself as an entrepreneur's investor. And, and what I mean by that is that I'm much more inclined towards an entrepreneurial way of thinking than I am like a venture capitalist way of thinking. And so I have a very hands-on role with every team I invest in. And that means I'm getting regular updates because these guys are not only just part of my portfolio, they're generally my friends and people that I, I, I tend to mentor and guide. And so I get fairly unparalleled insights into the development of the projects that I've invested in. And if I, for some reason, don't have that sort of relationship, what I look at is, you know, GitHub commits, speaking to teams, looking at their social media activity, looking at engagement. Uh, they're, they're fairly straightforward metrics for uh, discerning whether a team is hard at work or not. And in, in terms of, we've just uh, spoken about mainly the technology, the technological aspects of the tokens and the utility tokens and of all the projects. But we also have the other side of the story, which is which has been pretty under heated debate currently, which is regulatory uncertainty and restrictions that we, especially in the U.S., that we have. And I've recently uh, stumbled across the SAFT project, this simple agreement for future tokens. What do you think of this approach? Do you think this is how the industry will evolve in, into? Sure. So I, I, with Augur, we created the first ever utility token. And I, I will tell you that it was mortifying. It was absolutely terrifying to create this new sort of token we were being told at this time that everyone from Ethereum was going to jail for securities violations. We knew we didn't want to create a security. And we also realized that the only way we could have decentralized consensus in our system was through having a, a, a secondary token, not one for making bets, but for resolving the outcome of events. And so we created the REP token with Augur. But at that time, I thought it was like going to be this niche use case for tokenization, these utility or application tokens. Little did I know that we opened Pandora's box to this just massive flood of undiluted securities offerings. You know, people they wanted to raise capital without, uh, uh, without diluting their cap table. And that was not the point of what we created with Augur. And yet that's what 99.5% of utility tokens have been ever since. Now, the SAFT derives a lot, you know, Marco Santori, uh, who is our lawyer over at Augur and then helped Filecoin create the SAFT. Uh, Marco, uh, a lot of what he created, helped create with the SAFT, stemmed from our initial thinking around Augur, which is this idea that there should be a way to sell the rights to future tokens without actually selling tokens themselves, which in, in effect could be seen as securities. So instead you create this SAF, which effectively is a security, that you only sell to, to uh, accredited investors, and then when the, when the network that you're launching or the token that you're launching is ready, then you can do a public ICO or issue out the tokens uh, to your investors and let them go onto the market. Regardless, that enables you to have 
what was thought to be a compliant way of, of selling the right to tokens before the tokens are actually ready to be distributed. Now, you have a lot of legal experts today saying that that's not actually a good way of, uh, of issuing tokens and that it may violate securities laws. You have something that's called a security token, which I actually also helped create the first version of over at Blockchain Capital. And, you know, we're figuring these things out. I like SAFs, but given the, the amount of lashback I've heard from attorneys recently and securities concerns, maybe they're not the best avenue to take. But, you know, what's, what matters is that entrepreneurs try to be compliant, whether it's through a SAFT or a security token or raising equity first. You know, if you try to really be compliant and follow the law, I have a hard time imagining, imagining regulators are going to come after you unless, unless your attempt is really poorly thought out. But if you have good attorneys, you should be able to avoid getting into too much trouble. And with the security token, you were referring to uh, the BCAP? Token, correct. Right? Yeah, I, I had a, a follow up to that. I mean, obviously, uh, with with the huge ICO craze in 2017, um, as Fernando alluded to, this has been a hot topic, uh, not just in the U.S. but all over the world. You're obviously sort of in, um, you know, the belly of the beast in Silicon Valley there of of tech, and and they have many decades of experience with just traditional VC. But as you as you said, crypto is is brand new still. When we're trying to figure out how it gets regulated and whatnot, but my question relates to the nature of these blockchains as well. You know, obviously one of the interesting things is that they are borderless. Do you think uh, that there is going to be? Uh, don't take this in a way that I, I'm like anti-regulation in all forms. But do you think that the SEC will really keep up? With this space uh, and its global borderless nature over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, do you think that they're going to be the ones governing the framework of this stuff? It, it's good that you ask this. You know, people, especially outside of the United States, tend to misunderstand the role of the SEC and the CFTC and the IRS and the DOJ, all these big, uh, you know, federal agencies in the United States. Their job is not to create new laws and new frameworks and new regulations. Their job is just to enforce the laws that exist today, as it's been written by in laws by Congress and by and ruled upon by by federal court and Supreme Court judges. Their job is not to create new frameworks and new laws. And the, those who believe that are 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 are, are sorely mistaken. The the there's going to be new frameworks for this technology in the United States, but they're going to come out of you know acts of Congress. They're not going to come out of the SEC. The SEC, you know, as we've seen, and the CFTC, their hands are tied. You know, they're going after people that are egregiously breaking the law, but you don't see them going after the teams that are really trying to be compliant because they don't actually have the jurisdiction to do so. We're operating in a massive legal gray area. They could try, but they, they, they'd face potential lashback from, the, from other branches of the government, such as Congress, where we have a lot of allies. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think the SEC is going to be this trailblazer in terms of regulation. It's going to be governmental bodies. So I just testified before the EU parliament the other day on blockchain technology. And so like 
There are going to be parliamentary bodies. There are going to be congressional bodies that create new laws and new frameworks for this tech. But yes, I think there's entirely going to be a role for government, but it's not going to come, be, come from the regular, regulatory enforcement agencies. And how do you feel that the, uh, those parliamentary bodies or congressional bodies will uh, keep up with the stuff? I've been thrilled so far. I've found that the U.S. Congress, the EU Parliament, the Canadian Parliament have all been, even just G20 recently, you look at the World Bank, you look at the UN, everyone's really forward thinking on this stuff. You know, nobody really wants to be known as the person or the the government that inhibited innovation, unless they're, you know, China or Russia. You know, most of these guys want to be seen as forward thinking and they want to create the pro- a proper sandbox for innovation while not allowing, you know, terrorist organizations to be financed or child pornography to run wild. It, it's just about kind of weighing the positives with the negatives. But I've been deeply impressed with governments and regulators it, thus far, given what I expected for this technology back in, say, 2013 or 2014. One more uh, follow-up, uh, sort of big picture on the potential of blockchains in general. Obviously, there's a lot of news as of late with uh, social networks and Facebook. Um, you know, the Cambridge Analytica story, and all the way back, to, you know, to the elections and Russian hackers and whatnot, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I have a maybe a more general question in light of light of Facebook and social media. I was thinking about how um, the former vice president there, uh, Kamath Palihapitiya. Who? Uh, wow! Great pronunciation. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Also, I believe uh, is San Francisco based. He, yep. He's a part owner of the Warriors. So, <laughs> and um, he, I remember he at the end of last year was you know really went off on Facebook, which I thought was interesting. He said something like you know he hadn't posted in just a couple times in years, and you know we have to you know it's ripping the social fabric of our society, so on and so forth. And I think a lot of people in this space, myself included, have been in this space for years. We know the potential of blockchain technology to address some of these issues. Certainly not a silver bullet, but all you know when you just stack up all of the things in the negative column for the problems that Facebook's having with its user data, blockchains seem to be the best shot to really fix a lot of these errors. What what do you think about that? Just general big picture. What do you think about that? Blockchain technology has the potential to be the antidote to the growing Orwellianism of the world that we live in. That being said, they, blockchains can also be a, a fantastic tool for Orwellianism. You know, if you look at these distributed ledger uh, cash projects that China, uh, Russia, and actually most of the Western world are developing upon for their central banks, you know, the distributed ledgers can be fabulous for just tracking every transaction that a consumer makes. But, but back to the point, yeah, I, I, you know, blockchains have the ability to enable incredible individual and digital sovereignty in an age where we have less and less. And so I find it incredibly promising, but we're nowhere near the point in which, you know, Blockchains truly enable that beyond just the use case of transactional currency. We were not seeing the tools, you know, taking root just yet for for that that vision to be realized. But that's certainly why I'm investing in this and dedicating my life to this tech. I mean, it's pretty horrifying. Uh, 
how how little privacy we have in today's world. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty optimistic, uh, honestly, about about blockchains and salt and in maybe not salt again. You want to be careful and not say the silver bullet or anything, but. Uh, as you said, being an antidote for, for many of the problems. And I was watching, I watched Bloomberg a lot, and uh, it was in light of the Russian uh, hacking allegations, whatever, the things coming to light, some of the fake Facebook accounts at the end of last year that came to light. And there's like this roundtable in Bloomberg, and they're all sitting around, and then they have like, you know, the biographer, I forget his name, the guy that like wrote the first Facebook book. He was sort of like the biographer of the company, he saw it was going to be big. So he's, you know, they have him on there, there a couple economists and stuff, but like they're, they're trying to like grapple with these issues of just how, these single points of failure, these large companies that control so much data, they're losing control. And they just don't, you know, Congress is trying to get involved, this and that. And it was, it's just very interesting to watch these traditional outlets really try to, uh, they're just trying to grapple with these massive issues that, you know, in my opinion, Congress will be slow to, to grapple with. So take that again as you will. Like if you think there's going to be specific, uh, I don't know if there's any specific projects that you see that really could help with privacy or if you like Steam it or some other blockchain-based social media things. But it seems to me that you know, with encryption and as long as, as, long as there is you know, strong consensus and strong encryption, this is where our data has to go. I mean, it has to be encrypted on everybody's servers. The, the right to privacy is going to increasingly be bestowed and enabled by technology companies, not laws or acts of Congress. And so, you know, this is why we have to invest in the technology that enables that privacy, or else we will live in a total big brother world. I, I, there's, there's not a project out there. Right now, where I'm willing to, you know, put my put my tie my name to it, but I but I, I agree with you that blockchains are the solution to this issue, uh, and and I don't see there being an alternative solution, a distributed database solution, and one in which you know the the rights to information are owned by the data creator. Uh, that's just such an incredibly important innovation and a radical departure from the world we live in today where the only person that doesn't have the right uh, to personal information is a person to whom that di- uh, information belongs to. Now, speaking of other blockchain projects, Jeremy, is there any any cryptocurrency, a utility token or you name it, blockchain project which is currently underappreciated by the market and in your view holds great promise? No, no, there's not, there's not a single token out there that is undervalued <laughs> right now. Now, no, underappreciated... I, yeah, that's, that's it, not, not really, <laughs> my question is not really regarding valuation <laughs> per se, but okay. actually underappreciation. I, I, I think when Augur goes live, people will realize how revolutionary it is. I really like Zero X as this protocol for decentralized exchanges. Origin is coming out, which will be the kind of its protocol for the peer-to-peer economy. Basecoin is the, a stable coin, which I don't think people realize how badly we need right now. And so there are, there are a lot of underappreciated projects, but nothing that's undervalued. <laughs> for sure, mostly they're overly valued. Yes. Can you uh, can you speak about Basecoin a little bit? I think uh, we, we've talked a little bit about Tether and some of the implications on this show, but we haven't uh, delved too much into the economics of stablecoins. So, so here, here's the issue with cryptocurrencies today, whether it's Bitcoin, Monero, your cryptocurrency of choice. Uh, 
they're not units of account. And what I mean by that is that one Bitcoin today is not the same as one Bitcoin a week ago, and it's certainly not the same as what one Bitcoin will be a month from now. For your average consumer, and I'm concluding myself in that term expression, that's not an acceptable means of transaction. It's not an acceptable medium of exchange. I want what I'm spending my money with to be relatively stable in value. So even gold, which annualized has 16% volatility, it's too volatile for me. From a monetary policy perspective, it's retrogressive. Uh, we what what we expect as consumers, you know, maybe not in Venezuela or in Argentina or they've ex- or Zimbabwe where they've experienced serious hyperinflation, but most of the world, you you want your currency to be stable, and and so stable coins are an attempt to create that on top of the blockchain. Uh, now, what Tether is 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 a very simple system. You, you, you give $1 to Tether, and they print one Tether uh, uh, in, in, onto the blockchain that you now own. Now, that, that's great, except it's a central point of failure. And as I'm sure you've discussed before, that can be concerning. The, the, the notion that there are all these Tethers out there, there's one person that's responsible for them, and they're supposed to have a bunch of money in random bank accounts somewhere. Uh, I don't like that. I got into crypto because I liked the idea of decentralization, and thus I want a decentralized stablecoin. Basecoin has come up with a very novel and elegant way of doing that through a system of three tokens, Basecoins, Bondcoins, and, and Sharecoins. And, and what it enables is for a fully decentralized algorithmic stablecoin that remain, retains parity with the dollar but does not have any central issuer behind it. And, and that's important because in order for us to have a crypto economy of scale, we need to have a way to transact that is reliable. Bitcoin and Monero are not reliable because they're not units of count. In theory, if Basecoin can prove out its thesis, then what we have is a very good way to transact in a way that consumers can manage and, and, and find acceptable. Uh, and that will be a massive step forward for this industry. Do you have any thoughts on how that compares with uh, the Maker DAO and the Maker Die? So I, I like the Maker Die team, um, and I think they're super smart. Uh, you know, the, the, their system is a lot less elegant and a lot more complicated and based off of basketing. And one of the issues I have with that is I think the vast majority, you know, 99% of ERC-20 tokens are garbage. So the basketing doesn't, it isn't the greatest mechanism in my view. And, and the complicated nature of their technology also makes it more difficult. What I love about Basecoin is that I can show the CEO of a bank uh, uh, like a, a simple chart of how Basecoin works, and they're like, "Oh, it's a decentralized central bank. I love it." You know, <laughs> they, people can get Basecoin in a very easy to comprehend manner, whereas MakerDAO is a lot more complicated. And when you're talking about something that really, in theory, should have buy-in from large financial institutions, big hedge funds, you know, I think something like Basecoin could be huge. 
you needed to be fairly elegant. Is there a uh, a relative timeline that you uh, that you know with with the Basecoin project that you could share with us? Yeah, so the economics are pretty much all proven out. The presale just completed. The public, or the private presale just completed. Now there will be a, a public presale, but I'm hoping it will be live uh, by year's end, so fairly soon. Okay, interesting. Let's we'll keep an eye out for that. Well, Jeremy, uh, don't want to hold you too long. Uh, we're getting close to an hour here. As we close, one question: Any good books you've uh, read recently? Any crypto books specifically, or just general? Uh, I, I I don't read crypto books because you know you can learn more reading the news and Twitter every day than you could ever by reading a book. You know, books are for the very casual beginner. But otherwise, what I suggest is people read Distributed, my magazine. You can get it at distributed.com, and it's a 108-page primer on blockchain technology. It comes out two times a year, and if you read it from front to back, you'll have a really good grasp of this tech. Uh, but I don't, I don't normally recommend books for people that are serious about the tech because there's too much fluff. Uh, you know, go read my magazine, read the websites, read the news. If you have questions, look up the terms that you don't understand. Follow crypto Twitter, and you'll be way more in the loop than any book will kind of enable. That being said, if you're more technical, want to take things slowly, uh, you know, if you want a, a historical context, go read Brian Eha's "How Money Got Freed," or uh, get read uh, Michael Casey's "Truth Machine," which is more about blockchain technology. Andreas's "Mastering Bitcoin" is more technical. Uh, and then the book, my book of 2017, was uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Just a great book, chock full of life lessons. I encourage anyone, pretty much anybody to read it. It, it, it's, it's a fantastic read that's just rich with wisdom. Very good. And uh, where could our listeners go to find out more about what you're doing um, and with Awesome Fund and, and everything else? Uh, yeah, ausum.vc. That that that's our website, and then just follow me on Twitter. Just look up Jeremy Gardner, Disruptorpreneur is the Twitter handle. Easy to find. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, really appreciate you taking time out of your morning to speak with us, and uh, all the best. Hope to talk with you soon. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jeremy. 